comfortable coming in. Hey, listen, if you have a Bible or device you use, flip over to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to finish this chapter today. We've been going through a quick little series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit gives us um, ministries and services and empowers us to minister to each other. And I know it's been a helpful series for some of you. I've had a lot of people come up, not because it's correcting them necessarily, but because for some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard a teaching on this, which is kind of interesting to me, that these chapters and verses have not been traveled through for you. So let's go ahead and just read through it. I want to get right into this. We're going to start in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 14, this is the word of God for us today as Paul talks to a young church. And he says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But... As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Listen, we currently live in a society where there's probably no more of a painful experience that we go through other than maybe not being able to contribute or belong to a group. We're just a lonely people. Loneliness is painful. Just this smothering feeling that we're not really a fit for anyone. That we can't come into a room or a group or a church or a community group and just fit. That we don't belong. And even if we did belong, we can't contribute anything. It's painful. I mean, whether you love Jesus or think Jesus is a crutch, you struggle, you struggle with the idea that you don't belong and there's nothing for you to give. So one of the things we do as a church is we work very hard to create healthy community here. I mean, we can't create intimacy for you, can't give you any best friends, but we can create spaces where those things can happen. We can do that. Tight spaces, 
tight moments where you do life one-on-one with each other, sharing each other's pain, sharing each other's wins, so that even the lonely don't feel so lonely, right? This is why we're so committed to our calm groups or our missional communities or our communities on mission. We just, we believe that's the simplest, healthiest, most effective way to change a person and to change a city. It's the best way to do it. Best way. A living room full of disciples and believers who are on mission together, who are sharing life, man, they can create the best expression of hospitality that can be created. Far better than we can do here. We can't create here on a Sunday morning what can be done in a living room. Just can't do it. So it's a strategy. We're very resolved to build as many of these calm groups as possible, right? Which means pouring a lot of our time and our talent and our treasure into them. It's required a lot of investment. And it's also why we've had to say no to a thousand good things. Lots of good things come across our desk as leadership. Good things that churches, good churches jump on. And we've had to say, ah, that's really good. But no, no because it clutters the path of what we are resolved to build, which are communities of believers who are on mission together. It's also meant us as a leadership team doing the best we can to coach and to care for those who are leading in the living room setting, or maybe they're a co-leader, or they are a host of some kind, because that is very difficult work. It's almost church planting in some senses. One example of how we're able to do this is like today, we have a calm group greenhouse today, which is something that we started, I don't know how long ago, maybe a year or so. We've only had five or six of these where, where we kind of get everybody in the same room that leads or co-leads or hosts one of these because we just want to resource them, encourage them. They all feel like they're losing. They all feel like they're not doing a great job. We're trying to convince them you're doing a great job. And right where you feel like you're losing is where you're actually very strong and we're excited. We just want to help them as they work hard. You know, this thing that we're doing right now, the Sunday AM, it's, this is not an afterthought for us. It's not something we push down, but it is not our main strategy. This is not our main strategy. I mean, let's face it, most of your neighbors and friends, they're not going to hear the gospel in here. They're going to hear the gospel outside of these doors. Most of your friends and your neighbors and your peers, this is not where they're going to find deep, meaningful community. They're not going to be deeply known in this moment. It will be outside of this moment, right? Outside of this moment. So we want healthy communities. We want healthy communities. And that is why this passage holds such value for us as a church. I know it sounds odd because it's an odd passage. It has a lot to say to us because I think it shows how easily community can come unwound, how fragile it actually is. There's a lot of fragility in it. We see in this passage, Paul speak to the fact that not much is going to kill community faster than coveting what others have in the same room or acting self-sufficient as if you don't need the other half of the room. Both of those, by the way, are forms of insecurity. Both of them will kill community dead, right? Let me think about it. When you fill a room with people who are just, let's just say they feel inferior, They walk in and they look at the room, they take a a quick glance at the landscape and they say, I have nothing to offer here. I am not valuable. I'm expendable. There's nothing for me to contribute. And then walks one somebody after them that looks and says, I don't need anybody in this room. There's nothing for me to get out of this. In fact, I mean, maybe held back a little bit. There's nothing for me to gain in this. When you fill a room with people who feel inferior or people who feel superior, community will wither. 
It will die, in fact. This is Paul's context because Corinth, this church in particular, is filled with the very self-sufficient and the very expendable. The haves and the have-nots, if there ever was one. And the gifts of the Spirit coming kind of just creates a stage for that to be seen even more clearly, right? The spectacular, obvious gifts and then all the other gifts, right? The haves and the have-nots, the superior and the inferior, Now, what's interesting about this phenomenon is that we all can feel both probably in the same day. We can all struggle with feeling superior. You could be in rooms where you look around and you think, yeah, (laughs) I mean, let's just face it. I set the bar in this room, right? I just set the bar. I mean, everyone else is just kind of here, but they're really in my way. I'm the one that's self-sufficient. I don't need anyone to be healthy. I've got this. And then you leave that room and just walk through a doorway into another room and see how quickly you feel like, You are a have-not looking at all the haves. Being in a room full of contributors where you don't think you can contribute, now you feel inferior. Man, you could just look at Instagram. You can feel that in the same 60 seconds, can't you? Flick through Instagram. You can see a post that makes you feel very small. See another post where you can judge and feel very big. Everyone in here has struggled with coveting and feeling inferior. Wishing that you were somebody else or had what they had so that you too would be valuable. And I think everyone in this room has judged others while feeling superior to them, feeling like you don't need anyone else to be healthy. I think we're all in this passage. So the job we have whenever we read this is to, like I said two weeks ago, step into Corinthian shoes and kind of stretch the way we read the Bible a little bit. I think a lot of times we get jammed up because we read this Bible through a 2019 filter, and so it fails to connect right? For instance, when Paul wrote this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we looked at that last week, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in spiritual gifts, a little bit of a new concept for these guys. Brand new, in fact. The Spirit of God wasn't brand new. Spirit of God has been around. The Old Testament told them as much, but the Holy Spirit coming to everyone equally, giving gifts and never leaving, That's a new concept. You see, what they were used to is the Holy Spirit coming, but coming selectively, like a king here, a prophet there, some key figure, and not even staying for very long, staying for a little bit and then lifting, right? So coming selectively, coming episodically, but nothing permanent, nothing equal, nothing like what we experience today. Jesus changed all of that, however. In fact, I'll put a passage up on the screen. This is in Joel 2.28. You can stay where you're at. Don't turn there. But in Joel, this was actually hundreds of years before Jesus. In fact, this is prophesying of what God would do through the Holy Spirit. And then Peter loves this passage so much, he pulled for this and put it in his first sermon to the brand new church. So you'll find this passage in your Bible a couple times, in Acts and in Joel, where God says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now listen, this is a big part of our gospel. I mean, our gospel, the the story of goodwill, the story of goodness and grace and favor to you through the person of Jesus who came, lived perfectly and passionately, 
died perfectly and passionately, was raised from the tomb by the same Holy Spirit you have in you as Jesus ascends to the right hand of his Father whom he loves, sends the Holy Spirit to us to manifest through different various gifts and ministries and empowerments to do what? To minister to ourselves? No. To minister to everyone for the common good to glorify God as we aim everybody's attention towards Jesus. This is Holy Spirit. It's one that stays with us. It's not an episodic one anymore, even if you behave bad. Even if you misperform, this Holy Spirit does not lift. In fact, on your worst day, the Holy Spirit that is in you is just as strong, is just as present in you as the Apostle Paul on his best day. Isn't that hard to imagine? When we read about the Apostle Paul and we see all the crazy banana stuff he does, right? You know you have the Holy Spirit in you to the same degree? You have the same Holy Spirit in you? By the way, the same one that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. It's alive in you. You know, theologians, they creatively call this the democratizing of the Holy Spirit, which is just a fancy word for saying he's accessible to all equally. It didn't used to be that way. Now, what's cool about this is the Holy Spirit does not erase our diversity. Like, we're diverse as a people, right? You, you look across the room, it might not even look like we're all that diverse, but we really are. I mean, I don't have an East Tennessee accent. Do you notice that? You're like, he's got an accent, but where is it from? Likely a little bit from West Texas. I picked that up, right? I mean, my traditions are not quite like your traditions if you grew up here, right? Some of you came in from a different state, and you understand exactly what I'm talking about. We have different cultural colors. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to a variety of people, he doesn't erase all of that. He doesn't erase all of that. But no longer are our differences divisive. They don't divide us anymore. Our, our culture becomes subservient to the new life that we're given in Jesus. This is what we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We read this last week. We'll put it on the screen for him. One spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Okay. No one really throws rocks at this theology to this point. We've been in safe waters here to this point, right? No one's freaking out. This is very basic. Most agree with this. But it does not keep us from looking across the aisle and wishing we had what others had. It doesn't keep us from doing that or judging them for not being as awesome as we are, as spectacular as we are. You see, in Corinth, Paul had this very solid problem of people walking into what I imagine to be some sort of a gathering just saying, look at me. And all of my spectacularness, all of my obvious gifting. Like there's got to be a special seating section for people like me because I'm so awesome. Someone must seat me differently with all the awesome people. There are people that were acting like that. And then you'd have someone else walk in and say, nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. In fact, I don't even know if I have any gifts. I'm definitely not like them. Maybe I need my own section. I'm not spectacular at all. I don't even think I have anything to contribute. I think I just kind of show up. This is what he had. So it's, something's becoming toxic, which is why he's speaking to it. You know, when I first became a Christian, when I was a young man in the Lord, I would see men of God on the stage, and they, they, they had what I would call stage gifts. And I don't even think that's a real word. I think I made it up. But they had stage gifts, things like prophecy, heavy preaching gifts, a heavy faith-filled apostolic gift, healing, something just, just in your face, very big. I would see that, and I would think, 
So that's what it looks like to be helpful. That's what it looks like to be effective. That's what it looks like to get stuff done. Man. But then I would have people pull me aside and say, hey, Luke, listen, looks like you have a pretty good gift of administration and teaching. And I would think, I think you're calling me a nerd. (laughs) Sound like nerd gifts to me. I didn't ask for those gifts. I mean, we, we grow on trees. We're everywhere, administrators. It's a spreadsheet. It's easy. You open it up. You got rows. You got columns. It's not a big deal. Panic. I wanted to be like those guys, guys on the stage, because I wanted to be helpful. I wanted to be significant. But then this is how broken I am. This is how broken we all could be. I would leave that moment and walk into another room full of, I guess, people with other gifts that weren't so spectacular, and I would think, you know what? I wish you guys would just get it together. I mean, you're not very helpful at all. The most helpful thing you could do is to get out of my way. Give me some lane. I can do this. I don't need anyone else. I could flip the switch just like that. Feel inferior, then feel superior, all in the same moment. Listen, this is a community killer. A community killer. Can you see that? A room full of people who see themselves as better or worse than the person across the room. You pack a room full of people like that, you'll have a crowd. You might get a meeting, a Bible study might break out, you will not have healthy community. You will not have healthy community. It's also a testimony killer. It's a testimony killer. Because you know what people are used to when they walk into a setting like that? They're coming out of a world that we all came out of, which value is given based on appearance. Power is in the packaging, right? You're valuable if you get stuff done. You're valuable if you are effective, if you have a sharp wit, a high academic. I mean, you were just, it, it was all based on your appearance. This is toxic because when people come in and they're broken and they're hurting, I think they're kind of hoping for something different. In the gospel that we preach, there is no power is in the packaging. So what's a testimony killer? The main idea of what Paul is saying here is God has given a diversity of gifts, which we've looked at, to a diverse people to make one body for one purpose, the common good of all, for one God, as we aim everybody's attention to adore Jesus. What's odd in this passage, and I think it trips people up, and it's the only reason I'm speaking to it, is because we see Paul talk a little bit about less honorable body parts or unpresentable body parts. Maybe you caught that in your times of reading this passage, and you catch yourself thinking, what is going on? I don't even know what that means. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 23. Paul says, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. This is, this is what I believe he's saying. The less honorable parts of the body are our internal ones, the ones you just can't see with the naked eye, right? Your liver, your kidneys, your ACL, stuff like that, right? You just don't see it. They're important, though. They're important, right? The unpresentable parts, I think, are likely our sexual organs that are honored by a modest covering. I think that's why he's using the word modest there. I think that's what he's pointing at. All Paul is doing here, and all you need to be concerned about, is he's describing parts that are not obvious, but they're worth honoring. They're significant. This is good for us. I mean, just think about the the logic in what he's saying. If you had to choose today, whether you woke up tomorrow without any eyes or without adrenal glands, I'm I'm guessing most of the room would say, 
I don't think being blind sounds like a good outcome. I'm choosing eyeballs, right? And we see the eyes. We see through the eyes. We see the eyes. We put sunglasses over the eyes. We get operations on our eyes, contacts in and out of our eyes, right? We put makeup around our eyes. They're obvious, right? And sure enough, you'd wake up tomorrow and you'd be able to see. Here's what you wouldn't be able to do. You wouldn't be able to get out of bed. Not without adrenal glands. You're missing over 40 chemicals that your body needs just to do basic things like get out and put pants on, right? So you'd be able to see, but all you would see is the ceiling. (laughs) That was it. I don't even know if you'd survive for very long without those. I'm not sure yet. But it's significant. I mean, today, there, there are wide receivers getting ready for a big game today. Let me tell you, if they had a broken nose, if it was all wonky and sideways, they'd just slap tape on it, put their helmet on, and go out and play. They can't do it if they have turf toe, though. Isn't that interesting? And that's not even a break. That's just a hyperextension of a small little tendon in the big toe. And guess what they're not doing? You can't, even, you can't even see that thing. It's all shoved in a cleat somewhere behind some sweaty sock. Listen, they can't run a route without it. They're going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars with all the games that they're going to miss until that dumb turf toe is fixed. Ask them if it's important. Some of you that have sinus problems, that sinus cavity is not some sexy thing that we look at all the time, right? It's kind of all stuck up there. Most of you aren't even sure where it's at. It's just like somewhere up here, right? (laughs) And if you could see it, it's pretty gross. It's full of boogers and snot and leftover pollen and a couple bugs or something like that. It's all, it's gross. But you know as well as I do when allergy season comes around how valuable a good sinus cavity is, right? Just to get through the day. Paul is saying just because it looks insignificant does not mean it is. And I'm glad because he has a serious problem on his hands with this church. With this church. There are people that feel like they have a spectacular set of gifts and maybe they do. But they walk with a sense of superiority. We get that from verse 21, where he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Why is he saying that? Because this is some of us. I'm going to put myself in this category, too. This is some of us, isn't it? Where the best idea is our idea. The best work is when we run solo and everyone just gets out of our way. We are the essential ones to whatever we touch. We are the factor that gets stuff done. If there's anyone else in the room, they're passengers. They're passengers. In fact, if they're not like us, it's probably a sin issue on their part, right? They just need to grow a little bit, get more mature. If they were thinking of body parts, they would consider themselves the head or the brain or the hands. You can already see what that does to community. You can already see what that does to community. Honestly, and I'm speaking from experience, much of this happens underneath the current. It's more subconscious. We don't even really know that we're walking like that all the time. We actually need the Holy Spirit, sometimes through people, to pull us aside and say, hey, listen, (laughs) you're acting like you're better than everybody else. You understand how unhealthy it is what you're doing? We need the Holy Spirit to show us, and we need the Holy Spirit to change us, predominantly through trusting God. And this sounds odd, but predominantly through trusting that God does work his power in weakness. That's lost on a lot of us in the room who feel superior. We think weakness is just that, it's weakness. We don't believe that God would actually work through it. If for God to do something strong, he needs something strong to work through. He needs something bigger, better to show his strength, to show his power. I think that the, the, the gospel disputes this at every angle. If the gospel says anything, it says power is not in the packaging, 
God manifests his strength in weak people, in weak families, in weak cities, in weak moments all the time. In fact, he flaunts it. He flaunts the fact that he does not need to be propped up by strong, mighty men. Look at where he gets his disciples. He doesn't go to to the academy, does he? Or the elite schools. He doesn't go to all the places that you would predict. Where does he go? He goes to Salsaritas. Find somebody in the back that just got the job. They're making, they're making taco meat back there. Or the person that's filling potholes on I-40 at 2 a.m., right? Or holding that sign that says slow, and then they turn their wrist, and it says go, right? That person, that's where he got his disciples. That's where he got them. Just to show us. Just to show us. Imagine the gospel story if power was in the packaging, And God didn't come as Jesus as we see Jesus, but he came as like a a Forbes 500 CEO or some Hall of Fame quarterback with a chiseled jawline and perfect hair. Imagine if that's what the gospel looked like, what that would translate to you and to me. But that's not the gospel story, is it? God comes in the person of Jesus, who grew up in some forgettable backward town and likely a single parent, forgettable family, doing some forgettable job. He even looked forgettable. He didn't even have it. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. He had no former majesty that we should, we should, we should, look, should look, we should desire him. What do you think that means? He doesn't stand out in a crowd. He is the crowd. I don't know what exactly this means, if he had a dad bod or was losing his hair, had big ears, but everything that you have in your mind as to how he looked back then probably has him standing out from the crowd. Isaiah disagrees. No former majesty, nothing that we would look at and say, now that guy's a leader. Now that guy, nothing. If power is in the packaging, then God is wrong. But he's not. That's why he tells Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. He says that. He just says it. Listen, if you struggle with self-sufficient pride, one of the reasons is because you do not trust that God's power is made perfect in the people around you that you likely look down upon. And this is a subtle struggle, right? This is a subtle struggle for those of you, if you're like me, that struggle in this from time to time which I think is probably all of you. Now, the most inflamed example of what I'm talking about would probably be racism or sexism, right? It it probably would be because racism is where we say, I need to be valuable because the gospel and how it declares value over me is insufficient. So I need to feel valuable and I need you to see me as valuable. And the fastest way to do that is to dehumanize some people to superhumanize ourselves. That's what racism looks like. But on a subtle, on the subtle end of the scale, it looks like impatience. Why can't you catch up with me? Looks like anger. You're getting in my way. It looks like distance. I don't need you. I don't need you to be healthy. You see, it destroys community because these people feel like they don't need it. But the problem is much bigger than that in Paul's church in Corinth, and I think all churches, because he has another set of people, those who consider themselves less honorable, less presentable, the inferiors, right? We catch this in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body. I wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. This is also some of us in the room, a good chunk of us, right? Do you feel expendable, redundant, not necessary? 
I mean, you can't contribute anything, right? You just kind of walk around, don't really have anything to give, don't feel like you fit, don't feel like you belong. You see people that are better than you, and you think you should be like them, like you ought to be like them, but you're not like them. Man, that's a heavy thing to walk around with. You might even feel like you have something to contribute from time to time. You just don't like what it is, do you? You don't like what it is. I mean, sure, you get the, that there's a, a diversity in gifts and we need all of them for the body to be healthy, but you don't like what God has given you. Angry almost. Maybe you're convinced that if you were to disappear, no one would even notice. Everything would just continue to function the way it's been functioning. So you are convinced in your heart of hearts that you're just not necessary. So in the body metaphor, you're not the head or the heart or the hands. You're like the gallbladder or the wisdom teeth or the appendix, right? Body doesn't even need you. Body will do just fine without you. In fact, in some cases, it might be healthier just to cut you out in order to bring health to the body. It's a real struggle too. And if this is you and you struggle there, that is also an area of trust and an area of faith. You don't believe that God is sovereign. Sovereign meaning that he has control over all of our variables. Sovereign meaning that he gives gifts and ministries and services according to how he saw fit. We think him uncaring, unwise, not thoughtful in how he gifts us, how he cares for us. This is also a community and a testimony killer. Because what it does is it takes the gospel that we hold high and extends it in such a way that it says God is a monster. Because he doesn't think through these things. And he's not thinking about you and he's not caring about you either. This changes the gospel because God is no longer wise, but he's foolish. Almost an accidental God, moving stupidly with no design. But again, this is not the God of the Bible. We actually see God approach us in Isaiah 46 where he says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Part of his purpose is Jesus coming, living, dying, living again. That's part of his purpose. Another part, were you getting the gifts and the services and the ministries and the contribution that you have? That's part of the plan. It's part of the purpose. But this takes faith to believe that God actually thought it through for a minute or two, that he does care, that he is wise, It's no accident that you've been gifted the way that you are. It's no accident the way that you have your personality. It's no accident the way that you've been built. He thought it through from as Isaiah times before ancient times. He did spend a few minutes thinking it through. You see, Paul knew that if you fill homes with people who don't trust God, if you fill community groups, whatever you want to call them, with people that don't trust God, maybe they don't believe that he's caring, that he's wise, or they don't believe that he could work through weak things then you also have filled a room with people that don't understand the gospel. They have not understood or comprehended the total gospel. But listen, here is the gospel for those of you who struggle with superiority. Have you noticed that our gospel uses a cross? A cross that seems like foolishness and weakness and shame to all the superior people in the world. I mean, only inferior people hang on a cross. Only inferior people. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. You can stay where you're at. I'm just going to read 27 to 29 to you. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, those with obvious ministries and obvious gifts and spectacular competencies, let me ask you, where did you get that? Where exactly did that come? Did you book your way into that? Did you conference your way into that gifting, that ability? Did your dad, mom teach it to you? No, it was given to you. And not for your own good, by the way, but for the person sitting next to you and the person that lives down the street from you. That's why you have it. That's why you have it. But for those of you who struggle with inferiority, did you notice that your gospel has an empty tomb in it? An empty tomb. You know, a grave that holds a body, it boasts that God is not worth trusting, that he is not wise, he is not caring. That's what graves do. Here's a body, couldn't beat death, Neither will you. You stand no chance. This body is proof that you stand no chance. It's an empty tomb that says God can be trusted. It's an empty tomb that says God is wise, that he is caring, that he is sovereignly beautiful, that he cares. You see, this is what it comes down to. Both groups that I'm describing, the inferiors and the superiors, they all struggle with the same thing. It's the same problem. We're insecure. We can't get out of our own way. We can't even quit thinking about ourselves can't quit thinking about ourselves, how we measure up, how we're better than, how we're not good enough. The gospel that we've been describing all morning, it unselfs us, as Ray Ortland says. It unselfs us. It moves us out of the middle of our little cosmos and puts us on the periphery, which is a better context for us. It's where life makes sense. It frees us from this self-infatuation so that we are free to serve each other, We are free to connect to each other, to share pains, to celebrate with each other. This is why I think Paul says if one member suffers, all suffer together, and if one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is why I think he says that, because that's one of the marks of a church like this, that we can grieve and we can suffer with those around us. Can't do that if you're self-infatuated. Can't do that if you're not good enough for the room. You can't do that if you're too good for the room. Can't. Another mark is earnestly desiring these gifts that bring the greatest benefit, not to us, but to the body. Now, this is also a sticking point with people because the question will come, it probably has already come to you, Luke, why am I encouraged to eagerly desire gifts if I'm not supposed to resent the ones I have? Sounds like we're talking past each other, doesn't it, right? Listen, it's possible to earnestly desire, to eagerly desire spiritual gifts without hating and being upset and resenting the ones that you have. It's just dissatisfied contentment. That's possible. To be contented and dissatisfied at the same time, we do it in plenty of places, right? I like to give money to the church. I'd like to give more money to the kingdom. I would. But I'm content with how God is taking care of my family financially. I'd love for this church to grow. And not, not just in, in, in this, not just this, but, but in calm groups and more church. I'd love for legacy to grow. But let me... Let me be clear, I don't resent where we're at. I'm content with where we're at. I want more of God's presence and power in my life. I'm not satisfied with everything that I have of God right now, yet I am content in how he meets me in tough tough times and places. Very content. So if you're growing disciple, you're always going to be working through where discontentment and or contentment and dissatisfaction touch each other. That'll just be something that you grow in. But if I were to drill this down into some application, because I know we're, we're circling to land, 
I don't want you to ask what group you're in, whether you are traditionally a superior or an inferior, because I, I think you've seen by now, you're both. You're both. <laughs> I'm with you. I think the better question is, where do I not trust God? When I walk into a room and it's full of people and I look out and I start measuring myself and measuring, where am I not trusting God? That is the question I want you to ask, right? Is God careless? Is he unwise? Is he incapable of working through the weak and the foolish things of the world? Where? And probably an even harder application, a more tangible one, are you in community? Listen, I'm not up here to sell a timeshare. Not. Right? But are you deeply known? And do you know others deeply? Are you consistently in a community that is growing? Growing because you are pouring into it and you are investing into it. If you're not, you could pretty much hit delete on the last 38 minutes. I mean, all of what Paul is talking about is seated within the deep context of community. He's, he's not talking to an individual. The book of Corinthians is not written to a person. It's written to a church. It's written to a church. He's talking about community, that tight space where you do life in such a fashion where you are judging people, feeling insecure. They're judging you. They're feeling insecure. You guys fight about it. You confess. You reconcile. Tight spaces where you can honor each other, suffer together, celebrate together. Tight spaces where you can honor the gospel, where you can trust in it and export it. Extend it to the city in a way that makes sense. Listen, Sunday a.m., this is not what Paul is talking about right here, okay? It's not bad. In fact, I think probably many of us in this, in this room don't value this moment as we ought to value this moment. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something much tighter. And I get it, I get it. You're having a hard time finding one or staying in one. Sure. Let me ask you a question. What are you looking for? <laughs> what is it you're looking for? Do you want everyone to look just like you? You want people who are worth your time, people who won't get in your way? I know it's a struggle, but that, that group doesn't exist. The struggle you carry, you're carrying it with you from group to group to group. That's a personal thing. If you don't know others deeply and you're not being deeply known, you're spinning your wheels, and much of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, it's not going to make any sense to you. It might be interesting, but it won't be applicable. Won't be able to use it. Won't be able to use it. This is why I began with we've worked really hard to build healthy community here. It is not, capital N, not the fastest way to build this. Legacy could have a, a, a sanctuary that is six, seven times bigger than this if we wanted to. This isn't the fastest way to change a city, though. It's not the fastest way to build a disciple. It's going to be a tight-knit community. That's the fastest way to do it. You know, I coached runners for 10 years on the high school level, both distance runners and track runners, and I would always tell them, slow is fast. Slow is fast. All their goal, all they want to do is they want to finish the season running quick. They want to be fast. That requires very slow, methodical building at key times. If you run fast all the time, you're not going to be fast at the end of the season. Some of that applies here. Sometimes the fastest way to win a city is to build in a slow manner that looks like a missional community. It looks like when we are deeply known and know each other. That's why we are all in on that as a church. All in. So go ahead and stand with me. 
I'm going to go ahead and, and land this, and the, community, or the worship team will come out here in just a little bit, and as they lead us in song, and you have opportunities to pray, to actually answer, as you've heard the word taught to you, we have communion elements there in the back, representing the blood and the body of Jesus, and that is just a celebration of what God has done for us, and it actually is a memorial of how far we can trust him, too. You could trust him that far, broken body far. Spilt blood far. That's how far you could trust him. The world, let me just tell you, the world calls all of that business in the back, communion, foolish, meaningless, dumb. And of course, because they think the cross is foolish and weak and dumb. But God says his power is made perfect in weakness. And he says we can trust him. For those of you who call Jesus Lord in the room, I know that there is room for us to repent not just for not trusting that God is good and strong and wise, but I think there's room for us to repent for judging others, for being self-preoccupied, for being self-fixated, for putting ourselves in the middle of the cosmos. And listen, if you're in here and you're not a Christian, this body metaphor that we see Paul using paints a picture of connection where we're all pieces of a body connected together with Jesus as the head. Jesus is the head, Right? And we are connected for the health of each other and for the glory of the one who created the body. So if you're finding yourself in a place where you trust Jesus, maybe you're trusting or have questions about it, but you're finding that the Holy Spirit is doing something in you, changing you, maybe replacing your heart a little bit, where, where you used to hear words like this and they were kind of dull, they might be a little sharper today. You might not even be able to explain it, but something is happening in you. And you trust that Jesus rescues you and unselfs you and grafts you into something that is living. And maybe you believe that God has removed this ability for you to clean yourself. I would ask, do you trust that the only way to freedom in life is through Jesus, who is the hero of our gospel? Do you trust that he loves you totally despite you? Because if this is you and you sense the spirit of God changing you and making you new, I want to talk to you today. I'm going to want to talk with you. I'm going to want to pray with you because I'm excited about what the Lord is doing in your life today. Let me pray for you as a church. Father, we thank you for being sweet to us, for being kind, for being caring, for thinking things through, for having a design and a will and sticking to it, for being sovereign. Thank you for being generous, for being sacrificial, for engaging us, for enjoying us, for liking us. Lord, we're very thankful. And Lord, I know that there are people in this room that they struggle more towards inferiority. They just think there's nothing for them to contribute and there's nowhere for them to belong. Lord, I pray that you would shock them with the reality of your gospel, which is ultimate value is given to them, totally despite them. And then, Father, that even those of us that have maybe less spectacular and less obvious ways of contributing to the body, that we are just as valuable as the ones that receive greater honor, in Paul's words. And that we would repent, even in this moment, for trusting that you are not good, that you are a monster of sorts. And Lord, I pray for those in here who feel themselves superior in many, many moments, 
Lord, that we would see that you repeatedly use weakness as your display of strength, even in the cross, and that you would humble us by the power of your spirit to trust, to trust that all of those around us that have less presentable parts, less honorable parts, you were working through to do mighty things. Lord, we love you. And as we take communion, as we repent, and maybe even as we become born again this morning, we worship you as the head of the body, the one that leads all of us, the one we submit to, the one we enjoy. We love you and we thank you, and our worship is from the depths of our heart, Father. And where it is not, we pray for your Holy Spirit to awaken us a deeper desire for you. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.